It's the 19th of July, 1977, at Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's 20 to 2 in the morning, and three engineers at Rockwell Collins are working methodically trying to receive the weakest of weak radio signals from a satellite called NTS-2. This is a hellish task. They're using every trick in the book to try and pull the signal out of the noise. So they're working late at night because the radio environment is often quieter then, but also because the US Air Force has set up a competition to be the first to decode the signal. There's a race to be the first contractor uh, to decode the signal and the first contractor to receive something. The team are rather deflated. All they seem to receive is a stream of A's. You know, a, 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 A. It's so mundane, they assume their equipment's faulty and they go home. Yesterday, the day after that, it becomes evident that they have received the first GPS signal ever sent and thus a technology that transformed the world has begun. You say GPS to the average person, they may not know what it stands for, but they know what it is. It's about finding your way around in the world. The technology was developed in 1972, and it's still valid today. You can see that in today's day and age, when everything moves so fast, it was a very robust uh, technology. The technology of GPS has enabled us to be far more productive in how we grow food and how we deliver food, which allows us to be significantly more sustainable and to do far more with far less and start to tackle some of the really big problems as engineers of feeding the world with restricted resources in what is rapidly becoming a trickier climate. It is for security, personal security, personal utility, confidence, business, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it's amazing. Traffic can be controlled, trucks and transportation can be directed, planes can fly in a much safer way. I'm rather glad GPS exists when I'm in a plane. <laughs> I think GPS is fantastic because it's, it's touched everywhere. For example, I work in the Panama Canal and we use it daily to transit ships in the new locks that we just built in 2016. We use it on our surveys every day for maps, for dredging operations. The GPS makes every activity of human beings much more productive, much more useful, much more comfortable, and access is free. Access is free, and that's an absolutely critical uh, feature of uh, GPS. So that was the judges of the 2019 Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, raving about uh, GPS. And there were several important clips in that. The technology has been very robust and it's sort of evident from that in the clip. It's free to use. So what I want to do in this talk is talk about how it works. But before we get to there, I feel a, a need for a bit of a preamble. And um, map making and uh, location finding is really a very ancient technology. You know, um, Ptolemy uh, the, uh, and the Egyptians knew about um, how to measure angles and how to use that to find your uh, position on the world. And the key technology is called triangulation. Tri, tri because it's about triangles. 
And um, just because Pepys was an enthusiastic uh, supporter of um, Gresham College, I've picked a chart that was, um, de that was dedicated to Pepys as a sort of example of that. This is also a chart showing where I live, so um, I have a personal interest in this. And um, they've done a pretty good job, I think, measuring angles. I would say part of the coastline, this is the uh, uh, English coastline around the port of Harwich, ports of Harwich and what is now Felixstowe, uh, parts of this look a little bit distorted. Um, I do wish that uh, Woodbridge Haven was that close to uh, Langard Point, but I suspect it isn't. But it's not a bad attempt at the job. Um, I think it's, and I should say that if you were a sort of, if you're of a certain age and you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Guide, then probably you are familiar with the idea of triangulation, measuring angles to things and working out your um, position. That said, I think it's probably not fair if we're talking about GPS to sort of range over such a wide range of um, navigational experiences. So it's certainly true that there were astronomical observations are, have a very long history. Um, as soon as satellites were put up into the sky, people started measuring uh, Doppler signals from them. Uh, Sputnik, uh, uh, that was done with Sputnik. But the critical feature of GPS is time of flight timing. Um, the time it takes for a signal to travel from one place to another place, or propagation delay, as we might call it, that is the critical feature of uh, GPS, and that's what I want to talk about uh, in this lecture. And uh, that uh, technique is known as trilateration for three distances, or multilateration. Um, now, the principle is very easy to explain. Um, Let's see what I've got lying here. Oh, here we go. Right. So if we had a fixed point, um, uh, let's say it's the head of this microphone here, and I was able to measure very accurately the distance to that fixed point, then I could be very confident that I'm lying somewhere on a sphere around this fixed point here. So this fixed point could be a satellite that GPS is um, seeing in the sky. And this is my other satellite here. So... All I have to do is intersect these spheres and bing, that's where I sit. And I'm sure your, you know, hyper -geomet your geometry is good enough to work out how many satellites you need in order to get a reliable fix and all those sorts of things. Um, so that's the, that's, the, that's the sort of big idea, if you like, behind um, GPS. And if you're going to find four things, in this case they are latitude, longitude, altitude and time, then you need a minimum of... Um, uh, four satellites in order to solve that problem. Uh, the nice thing about radio waves, which travel at about 300,000 uh, metres a second in a vacuum, is that when they're travelling in air or some other medium, they, their speed doesn't change that much. So if you can measure delay, then you can measure distance. Uh, so that's the whole, that's the sort of basic principle behind GPS. But where did it start? Okay, well, um, I don't think there's much doubt about this, actually. Um, it started probably with uh, the British Royal Air Force, the RAF. And in World War II, the RAF had a pressing need for accurate navigation. Uh, they discovered that daylight bombing raids were very, very expensive. And uh, you know, they were suffering huge losses, so they needed to bomb at night. And bombing at night is tricky because you can't look out of a cockpit and know where you are. 
So they, had a solicit they needed a system that helped them navigate across what was then enemy territory. So that's continental Europe. So they developed this system that was known as G. And a typical G setup used three transmitters. Uh, one of those transmitters, which in this case was in Daventry, uh, in the centre of the slide, uh, was called the master, or transmitter A. And the others, of which there might be two or three, uh, collectively they are called a chain, uh, were the slaves, um, B and C in this case. Uh, by the way, the terms master and slave might sound a bit awkward to modern ears. Um, it's, I'm afraid it's just standard terminology in electronics, so I'm going to sort of stick with it because I, you know, I don't want to not use the right words. What happens is the master transmitter sends out a blip, so it goes beep, and uh, it does that at regular intervals. So if we were just looking at the master signal, it would go beep, well, that's meant to be regular. It's not very regular, is it? But it's my attempt to do that. And uh, what you would do in the aircraft is you would have an oscilloscope, and the oscilloscope would be synced up on that blip from master A. Uh, slave uh, B, for example, waits until it receives the blip from master A. And it says, ah, oh, I've got A. I will now send out my blip. It usually waits a fixed period. I think it's a millisecond. So it says, ah, oh, I've just heard A. Blip. And, so, and C does the same thing. It waits and sends out its blip as well. So if you think about it, you've now got uh, this system which is all timed from the master. And when you hear those blips, will tell you something about where you are in relation to all of those systems. So I think I can illustrate this uh, reasonably effectively. Here's my uh, bomber straying into um, enemy territory, as it was then, and we send out a blip from uh, Daventry, say, and I note that. G doesn't measure absolute times. It doesn't know when Daventry went blip, so that's going to form its sort of base, if you like. And then we'll pick another one, a transmitter. It, too, sends out a blip, and then we measure the difference in blips between those two times, between those two systems, and that helps us work out where we might sit. Now, just to take a very simple case, you can see, um, let's take the case where the two blips arrive at exactly the same time. So you can see that on the slide. They would, the, the aircraft would either be here, in this case, or up here. And in fact, if the aircraft sat anywhere on the line between these transmitters, it will receive the blip from here at the same time as the blip from here. So the time difference between the two blips is zero. So you can use that idea to create a map. So there's a line. So for example, one measurement, which is no time difference between the two blips, gives you a line on a map, which you can use to localize yourself. Now I've picked the easy case, which is when the blip is zero, when the blip, when the, sorry, when the difference is zero, when the difference is non-zero, positive or negative, the uh, curve is a hyperbola on the uh, chart. But it's possible to work all of that, this out in advance. So the navigator in the aircraft doesn't need to be sort of drawing complex hyperbole on charts. You issue them with a chart and then they look up with the time differences they're measuring where they are on the Earth's surface. So this is a G chart, um, and I don't know if you can see carefully, they're often a bit difficult to read, but 
there's a sort of set of hyperbole coming out here and here, so there's a hyperbole centered on the left around one of our transmitters and there's one over here. So what you would do is you would make measurements using this system in the aircraft and then you would get out your chart and uh, the, the measurements were made in normalized units and you would say, well, I must be on this line, red 15, and this line here, green 12. Ah, right, well, I must be here then. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Um, I'll just show you the technology. This is the typical look of a G-screen showing simulated pulses from the A-Master station along with those from slaves B and C. Note that once the screen has been synchronised to the pulse chain by using the large rotary control to the bottom right, these will appear stationary. Well, it all looks fairly easy, although I have to tell you, I'm not sure I would fancy being up in an, a, a Lancaster bomber while uh, nasty people were shooting at me, having only an angle poise and uh, a pencil and some these two rather heavy and uh, difficult to use oscilloscopes in order to navigate with, but it was the start of what is called hyperbolic radio navigation. Uh, so G begat other systems um, and the most obvious uh, sort of son of G, if you like, was a system called Loran, uh, Loran A, B and C, uh, which was essentially an American, a US hyperbolic uh, navigation system. One interesting thing about G was the design decisions the designers were making when they were sort of cracking on with it. Um, the transmitters were based on land, so um, transmitter power doesn't really matter. You know, so they were using, um, I think they were about 300 kilowatts of power, these transmitters, huge, great things. I, I've never known how they survived being bombed to death, actually. I mean, it must have been painfully obvious if you ever captured one of these maps where where the transmitters were, and they were giving out 300 kilowatts of power. So it can't have required very much uh, effort to find them. But anyway, uh, it was kept secret quite successfully, I think. Um, and they transmitted at around uh, 50 megahertz. The system they were using to stop collisions is called time division multiplexing. These blips are being sent at different times. So you're using a single frequency. That makes for a sim sing simple receiver in the aircraft but using time in order to help you uh, transmit the information. Uh, one of the challenges, of course, is that measuring time differences in analog electronics is really tricky. Um, and it's, it was, it's all right for a, a military system where the cost isn't really super important. But if you wanted it to be picked up by commerce, time difference measuring with analog electronics is very, has remained a big challenge. So what about phase? Could you use phase instead? Yeah, well, there's a British system, um, and that was called uh, DECA, the DECA navigator system. And um, it used phase. It used multiple frequencies, and you looked for phase nulls. Phase are a, a lot easier to work with. Used frequencies of about 100 kilohertz, so it's quite long wavelengths, about 3,000 meters. Um, so if you were using a DECA system, you'd sit there twiddling knobs, you know, listening for phase nulls, and you used one of these charts. Uh, this is the Thames Estuary. I'll just sort of blow it up for you so we can... Um, and you can see this chart is crisscrossed with uh, green lines, each with a unique label. This one says F39, and red lines. Here, this one says E6, E7, and so on. So it's a, pretty much the same principle. You bought these charts, looked up the... Uh, locations of the knobs on your machine and uh, off you go. So 
very interesting design decision. The DECA, de the DECA designers have made a decision that they really don't want to impose cost on the uh, receiver end, and so they've come up with this rather ingenious, brackets, complicated, uh, system in order to uh, sort of manage the cost. You know, and that, that's often what they say about an engineer. You know, an engineer could make for 10 cents what any fool could make for uh, $10. Um, by the end of World War II, uh, this was standard practice in the Royal Air Force. Loran was in um, good use across the uh, US. There were 72 Loran stations and sort of tens of thousands of uh, uh, receivers. And um, Loran C, which was the uh, later version of this, and DECA were pretty sort of comparable in localization accuracy. You could get to within... Um, yeah, a couple of hundred metres in good conditions. The problem was, in bad conditions, that could easily rise to many kilometres of error. Uh, that wasn't so good. And you're using ground-based propagation. And when you're using ground-based propagation, you've got to think uh, very carefully about the frequency of the transmitting of the, wa wa of the waves that you're going to use. Because if they're too high frequency, they are not going to go around the curvature of the Earth. And the curve, the Earth, oh, I'm sure there's no one in the audience who disputes the fact that the Earth is curved, but um, it, uh, it curves rather more rapidly than you might think. So uh, your, the range that you were getting on these things wasn't very impressive. And so you got into this usual position with ground-based systems of the ground-based tower being higher and higher and higher and using as low a frequency as you dared to try and get it to refract around the Earth's surface, the lower the frequency, the more difficult it was to do the timing measurements, the more power you had to use, the bigger the antennas you had to use, and so on and so on and so on. So that was the, that was the sort of challenge that you were in. Now, as soon as you move to satellites, you can consider you've only got line-of-sight propagation to the satellite, so you can get back up to using very high frequencies. It's a big, big help. It's a big help because you get very small antenna, um, and um, these are the frequencies that are still in use today. So GPS uses primarily uh, a frequency in the what's called the L1 band. Oh, perhaps this is a good time to say... Um, I'm going to be talking about a system here which has military origins, American military origins. So um, most texts on this, and the standard sort of undergraduate textbook on this runs to about 500 pages, of which at least 30, I think, are acronym uh, explanations as a glossary to explain all the horrendous alphabet soup that is GPS. I'm going to sort of try and keep it in control, so you're not going to get an alphabet soup. You'll get some of it. It'll be an alphabet soup song. Okay. Um, L1 is the standard band, and that's the one that most of your, uh, if, if you're in the habit of using uh, GPS daily, and almost everyone in the audience will be doing that, will be using L1. There's also an L2 band, which originally was reserved for the military. Um, uh, the L2 band is used by something called dual uh, frequency uh, sets, and I'll try and remember to say a little bit about that later, um, if I've got time. So, GPS then. 1977 was the situation I set up at the start of a lecture. That was when the first signal was received. Uh, it wasn't until 1993 that there was a full constellation of 24 satellites. 
up there. So that's quite a slow uh, progression. Uh, this um, sort of slow evolution of um, technology over the design life of a system is very unusual in the civilian world. You know, it's very common in the military world. You know, a, a, a sonar set, for example, will probably have a 20 or 30 year life. You know, the designer will be, will be and so it's very common to be designing systems that you know cannot actually be built right now, but you think the technology will be available in five years' time to implement this thing. And GPS was certainly uh, like that. Okay, well, how does it work then? Um, right. Well, it's very simple to log in to gps.gov and... Um, download all of the doc public information documents and you could certainly download all of those and in principle you could decipher all of the GPS standards and build a receiver. Um, it's a hell of a job to actually read all of that stuff. So, and the part of the problem is it's a mixed system. It's part military, part civilian. Um, and another part of the difficulty is the system has changed over the years. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do Richard's sort of COD explanation for basic GPS, and then I'm going to add um, texture and sort of filigree to it to try and bring us up to date as we, as we talk about it. Um, so, just a first bit of technology. In GPS, a satellite, which is where the transmitters are, is usually called a space vehicle. Uh, so, if I start referring to space vehicles, uh, they, they're usually satellites. has a great advantage, by the way, if you're writing about GPS, that no one can spell satellite, and space vehicles are very easily spelt. So, uh, I shall uh, try and do And it's highly likely that I have, at some point, uh, misspelt uh, satellite in this talk. So, let's have a look at this um, slide, and I will try and talk you through it. So... This is a simplified block diagram of what a GPS transmitter looks like. And um, don't worry if you're feeling alarmed, I'm going to, going to decomplex this as we look at it. On the left-hand side is a critical thing of a GPS satellite, and it's an atomic clock. It's a very accurate, non-drifting, or as non-drifting as you can possibly make uh, clock, and each satellite has one of these clocks. As it passes over ground stations, of which the uh, main one is uh, somewhere in the centre of the United States, it is re-synced up with all of the other satellites and it is not locked to uh, ground time, but the internal clock that GPS is using is given a conversion factor to get into um, your, you know, set earthling time, the sort of time that we use, you know, hours minutes, seconds, leap years corrected for and all that sort of stuff. There's no absolute reason for uh, your GPS receiver to know the exact time uh, where you are on Earth, but us Earthlings find it very convenient to know the time, so the uh, transmitter carries a conversion table in it, which you, will, which you will use. But the critical thing is, it is a reasonable assumption that all of the clocks in all of the satellites are going together at exactly the same time. Now, that feels sort of improbable if you're an electronics engineer, and I'm still slightly surprised that they thought they could get away with it, but um, it has turned out to be uh, possible to achieve that, and all 
yes, all of the GPS systems that we're going to do uh, will, will do that, and they have an absolute view of time. That's very useful, because it means when it goes, if it was to go ping, we would know what time it sent the ping, because it can stamp it with a timestamp. So that's, that's important thing one. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to transmit at a given frequency. That was that L1 frequency that I referred to earlier. And that is multiplied up from this very accurate clock. So this thing is going tick tock, tick tock. This thing is going tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. It's actually a sine wave going exactly that frequency. Now, just as your radio, well, if you're of a certain age, you will remember uh, one form of modulation of your, wave, uh, of your radio was amplitude modulation, where you squeeze the amplitude of the carrier wave up and down, or you could change the frequency. I wouldn't recommend doing that because the frequency is carrying the clock, which we, we want to keep constant. What GPS does is it changes the phase. So if you're sending a digit that's one, you just send the carrier, and if you send the... Uh, if you're sending a zero, then you just flip the phase and you send it upside down. Okay, so that's called binary phase shift keying. So that's that bit. Okay, and then it goes out to the antenna, which looks like um, a sort of uh, looks like a smarty tube on the uh, satellite. I'll point it out when we see one. This bit here, these two bits here, are the bits that carry the information. This bit here is the possibly the most interesting bit, it's the um, CA code. And uh, the conditional access code, this was um, sort of designed uh, originally for, to allow a coarse sort of sync up in these delays that we're trying to measure between the two clocks. Remember, it was originally designed as a military system, so the idea is you send out this rather sort of coarse uh, code, and then there's another channel which the civilians don't get to access with a similar code but much longer. And that's what's going to give you the precise uh, timing. As it happens, the CA code has turned out to be uh, pretty good. This code is unique for each satellite. So it's a, it's a new, unique code and it's quite long. There's 1,023 bits to this code. And we're going to send out that, and that's going to be the thing that's going to allow us to lock up on a particular satellite and work out the propagation delay. And then down here is side data that sort of covers um, other stuff to do with... Um, uh, it tells you things like... Um, it sends you an almanac of where this satellite is going to be. So... so future uh, prediction. It's, uh, it tells you the satellite's ephemeris, that's its uh, motion parameters. Remember, you need to know where the satellite is very accurately because it's a moving thing, so you need to know where it was when it sent your, when you received this signal. You need to know where were you when you sent me the signal, so you've got to compensate for all that. It sends you corrections that allows you to get back to your uh, local time signal. Um, what else? Synchronization signals. Um, oh, under ionosphere corrections. Uh, the ionosphere is a bit of the atmosphere that's full of ions. It has a, a slight effect on propagation delay. It can make the signal wander a bit, and you can do some correction from that just by knowing a little bit of stuff from the ground stations. 
I'll come back to that because it turns out to be quite a significant uh, problem and there are better ways of, of uh, correcting it which give you very accurate, um, it can give you very, very accurate um, GPS signals. Now, the one I've just sort of skipped over a bit was this CA code. So I'm now just going to sort of zoom in on the CA code bit, um, largely because it's so technically interesting and challenging. I remember this as an undergraduate and I thought, this is one of the most beautiful bits of um, uh, signal theory I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's a stunning thing. So, um, this is an example of, uh, well, this is a, not the full code. This is a small segment of CA code. It just looks, and it's a pseudo-random sequence. So, what that means in layman's terms is if you look at the code, it looks random. Um, you couldn't easily predict it, but it is cyclical, so it comes back after 1,023 of these things, it comes back and repeats. And we would co convert that into an equivalent waveform. So where it's zero, uh, we would make it minus one, and where it's uh, one, we would make it plus one. So that's the transmitted signal that's going to get used to control the phase of our carrier. Now then, we're going to see that at our receiver. And um, it should look the same. And I'm fairly confident it is the same because I just dragged it from one place to the other on PowerPoint. Um, but it's delayed. Uh, but we don't know what the delay is. So how can we work out what the delay is? Well, uh, we can use a very standard bit of technology to do that, which is we can compare it against a reference. So if we know all the codes that a satellite could send and your GPS receiver generally does know the codes that are being used by all of the satellites. They're not very long, just has a record of them. Then what we could do is try and do what's called a cross-correlation comparison between my reference code, which is the green one, and the one I've just received. Now, exactly how you do that is probably a little bit intricate, but let's see if we can do it. So the idea is that we are going to sort of overlay the pink and the green code. Um, and let's see if I can use the pointer to show this. So for example, here, this is a minus one. And here, this is a plus one. So I'm going to multiply those two bits together. Minus one times plus one, minus one times plus one, which equals minus one. And I'm going to do the same along here, which is plus one times well, you can't really see it, but I'll say minus one. And that also gives you a minus one. And you can imagine that when they're not aligned, you'll get some plus ones, you get some minus ones. On average, you get as many minus ones as plus ones. So when you add them up, you get zero. Right? No correlation between my reference code and my received code. So what we would normally do then is we would then plot uh, at that point, I've said got zero correlation at zero delay for my uh, reference code. And now I will just jink the reference code about a bit, and I'll do that very precisely. I'm sort of, sort of like clod-like moved it across the screen here, but in practice I would go chip, 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 chip. It's quite a laborious process, this. So I'm going to do this with every single code in my library against this transmitted thing. So you can imagine the computing to do this. I've just got the code. Try this one. You sort of reach into your pocket, get this one. Plot the correlation. Look for the peak. Oh, I found the peak. It will be big. It's as big as the code is long. That delay there is the propagation delay. That's one satellite. 
Now I'm going to do the next satellite. Now I'm going to do the next satellite. I do that for every single satellite that I can see on Earth. Now, at this point, you might have spotted what looks like something really odd, in the sense that all of these satellites are transmitting at the same frequency. Why the hell don't they cause a mess with each other? You know, it's as if you're hearing all of these codes at the same time. And the answer to that is there a special sort of code called a gold code, named after Mr. Gold. And these codes are specially chosen so that they do not correlate with any of the other codes. And they only correlate with themselves at when they're exactly lined up. If you choose the code wrong, I hate to tell you this, but say this, but you know, you can get spurious correlations called side lobes. It's a nightmare. So the choice of these codes is very, very carefully chosen indeed. They're not secret, you can easily download them, and they're very easily created using shift registers. So once we've got this thing synced up with the, uh, these satellites, we know for each satellite what the propagation delay is, and we've got, we know that all of their clocks are synced, and we are synced with it. So it's a beautiful system. It's as if I've, you know, it's as if I, my sort of Mickey Mouse watch on my wrist here was sort of magically synced up with the cesium clock in, well, I don't know where it's kept, but the National Physical Laboratory for the sake of argument. And it does that by constantly sort of locking it uh, together. So that's why your GPS receiver tells the time. Okay? You can always trust the time on your GPS receiver. In fact, I know a system um, that was built by a friend of mine where he doesn't use his GPS receiver for any of the location data. It's used for a static system. He's not interested in the space. He knows where it is. He put it in the ground there. He only uses it to get accurate timing. So, very um, important feature of this. Now, why is this beautiful? Because the, um, the satellites need to transmit on only one frequency, which means you can build them very efficiently, and it's the same frequency. Put another satellite in the air, we just need to give it another code, right, which is all pre-declared. We don't need to change the antenna. We don't need to have broadband antennas. The receiving technology is also simple. We just need one antenna. It's at that frequency. It's a declared frequency. That's nice and beautiful. This mechanism gives you gain. This peak here is a thousand times larger than the background. So it doesn't matter if we've got a lot of noise with GPS. That's another beautiful thing. This system's called Code Division Multiplex. It doesn't use a frequency, that's FDMA, Frequency Division Multiplex. It doesn't use time, it uses codes. They're used in other places, but they're relatively, um, uh, relatively uncommon. Another beautiful thing about it is it degrades gracefully. So, as we'll see in a moment, the Galileo system, for example, which is the European version of GPS, also uses this frequency. Um, it uses different codes. So as you add more and more satellites, your signal-to-noise ratio goes down, and it, gets, it looks a bit more noisy, because these codes look like noise, but it doesn't just stop working. It's a graceful degradation. Now, that said, you know, on paper, um, a GPS receiver is a complex thing, no question about it. And I somewhat hesitate to devote um, many more minutes to describing it, but um, broadly speaking, you've got this high-frequency front end here, as it's called, on the top left of the slide, and that's got the antenna, and it mixes it down to an intermediate frequency, and that looks fairly uh, conventional. 
you've got this thing here, often called the signal processor on the top right, and that's doing all of this matching of codes, working out how, which codes are in use, what the delays are, and so on. And then it passes its estimates, or sometimes called pseudo-ranges, because they're not quite ranges yet, but they're estimates of um, primitive estimates of range, to a computer. And every GPS system has a computer in it. Uh, of course, there's a computer that handles all of your interaction with it, or all the whatever purpose you're using that location information. But there's another computer, and all that computer does is solve hyperbolic equations. Uh, and even that is... is yeah, it's more than a student project to solve those uh, equations and then the rest doesn't matter, you know. So, um, it's a sort of remarkable... Well, let me show you um, the first GPS receiver and you can, you can sort of feel, um, feel my pain, if you like. So, on the left-hand side is the first known GPS receiver. Uh, those are seats there, ladies and gentlemen, so two large... Well, I'm saying large, they might be small, but they're, they're substantial members of the US Air Force, no doubt, sat there rec receiving these highly secret uh, signals. As we know, that would now fit into something about the, the size of a pencil tip. So GPS has been an amazing recipient of miniaturization. Frankly, I would never have guessed that it could be miniaturized um, so effectively partly because it's got this it's got a front end that's quite analog you know it's difficult to miniaturize analog stuff and by the way over on the right um is a um is a satellite this is a boeing block 2f uh satellite so comparatively recent uh, these are the antenna up here these ones are the civilian antenna i think and these mysterious ones up here are doing other things uh, for the military. Um, not shown here, but mounted on the side are the solar panels. And um, uh, the, they have a design life of about 10 years, these things. So you sling them up there, they open up, and um, they're quite heavy. And that's because they operate near the Van Allen belts, which are full of um, bad radiation. So they're shielded, I think. Uh, so they, they weigh between one and a half and two tonnes. So it's quite a bit of the Earth's resources are expended throwing two and a half tonnes up um, that high, so it's a good thing that they're useful. Um, and um, this, even this got fairly soon uh, miniaturised. So this is a, a picture from the Smithsonian Museum of one of the very early um, sort of standard GPS uh, receivers. Um, it's about this size. It's called a man pack. Um, yeah, again, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps a word that we wouldn't use nowadays, but it is still called a man pack. And um, cost about $45,000, so quite affordable in military terms. And it weighed about nine kilograms. And the, of course, the designers thought, well, you just sling it on the back and use it. And the soldiers soon discovered nine kilograms was far too much, thank you very much. So they strapped it to the side of jeeps and all sorts of things. Um, and we're all perfectly well aware of how large a current GPS um, receiver is. Right, that was Richard's simple GPS system. I can see some people in the audience are sort of fainting away at the complexity of it, even at this point. There is a bit more complexity, for which I apologise, but it's kind of cool, so I'm going to not apologise too much. So, 
we now have to introduce you to some more of the fiendish world of US military acronyms. Uh, the various generations of uh, GPS are known as blocks for reasons that no one knows. So block 2A, which was the first generation uh, satellite, there are none of these up in the sky at the moment, had these two channels, right? L1 and L2. And I've talked about one of those codes, which I've shaded in green for civilians. Um, and I haven't talked about PY, so let's just briefly mention that. P is just a longer version of the CA code. You have to have bigger registers, but because it lasts longer, you get more signal processing gain and more accuracy. So it's exactly the same principle. And it runs over the top of your CA code. How does it do that? It's code division multiple access, so it just looks like noise as far as the other code is concerned. L2 is a separate uh, channel which only sends or only sent P, a version which is the military code. And the advantage of having two channels, a twin channel receiver, is that you can offset some of the effects of the ionosphere because you're using two different frequencies. So the difference in reception times you get across those two frequencies allows you to backfit a model for that, uh, for one of the principal corruptions that affects your positional accuracy. The acronym PY refers to encryption. The very early versions of these sent out unencrypted high accuracy signals. They very soon realized that it was wise to encrypt the military uh, signal, so a military grade a uh, GPS receiver has to go away and be, have a key put into it, which allows it to unlock the uh, encrypted uh, code. If you're, if you're like you and me, you do not have access to that code, so we have only to work on the CA system. Now, it soon became, this was, you know, pre-2005, it soon became fairly obvious that the civilian uses of GPS were far exceeding the military uses. And... Uh, several US presidents were involved in basically adjusting this service to be more use and more help to the, to the civilians of the world. GPS is a system that spans across the world. Whether you're an enemy of the United States or a friend of the United States, everyone gets access to the GPS system. It's worth just pondering that. I mean, I know there's a lot of, lot of anti-American feeling around the planet at the moment. Well, there has been for some time. But those lovely Americans, they did give us GPS, you know, and it's a marvellous, marvellous uh, donation to, the, to, to humanity, incredibly useful um, thing. Now, it's worth saying, very early on in GPS's history, there was a deliberate corruption that was applied to the CA code. It's called selective availability, uh, to make it a little less accurate. And you might remember in one of the early Gulf Wars, I think, um, there was a temporary shortage of military-grade GPS receivers, so they turned off selective availability, and all of our GPS receivers suddenly started working very much better. It was a beautiful moment, and it's never gone back. And in fact, I think it is now... They're not allowed to put it back under uh, US uh, laws. So that's there with us forever. Well, as we've gone through various generations of uh, uh, GPS... Um, so 2R satellites, there are some 2R satellites still up there. What you can imagine what's happened, if my clicker will work, is that we, will, we have more and more channels in more and more bands. But the principle, uh, so anything in pink is military and everything in green 
is available to you and me. So we've now got to this highly desirable situation of three bands uh, offering signals to us in green, which offers the potential to all of us to correct for these ionospheric um, errors, which were one of the principal causes of error in GPS. So the satellite, depending on how enthusiastic user of technology you are, you, you may not be using, well, I'm confident you won't be using all of these, uh, but some of you will be. If, you, if you're fond of buying the latest, absolutely the latest, latest mobile phone, um, you might be using more than one of these bands. Uh, mine does. Oh. Um, I better not tell my wife how much I had to spend on it. My, my view was it was all part of research for this lecture, so I'm, I'm putting it on expenses. Um, now, GPS is only one system. I entitled this lecture GPS because it's the acronym everybody knows. It stands for the Global Positioning System. Um, and it's become a generic word, hasn't it, for a machine that tells you where you are. Uh, but the whole system is called GNSS. And uh, GNS comprises a number of different satellite systems devised by different countries. So the, the daddy of them all is GPS, which currently has 27 satellites uh, up there and has worldwide coverage. But we also ought to mention GLONASS, which is the uh, Russian system. Uh, GLONASS um, doesn't use CDMA. It uses frequency, um, different frequencies from different satellites, if I remember rightly, uh, which is a bit odd, although it's rumoured to be moving to, um, the ne next gen is rumoured to be moving to six, uh, CDMA. It's very good in polar regions, uh, GLONASS, because it's got some satellites with high um, uh, angles, it's up to six, sort of 65 degrees up from the equator. And then there's Galileo, which is the European system, um, which has 22 satellites, and that is worldwide. And then there are the ones that people know a bit less about, um, but if you've been to China, you might have been using uh, Beidou, um, which is a it was a bit of a spin-off of Galileo. There were some early collaborations between the Chinese and the Galileo um, team. Beidou is the was it the first? Yes, it was the first system I think to use geostationary satellites. So most um, of these systems, the satellite whizzes around the Earth uh, like that, and it's deliberate design decision um, because if it whizzes you can make sure it whizzes over the United States or whatever the home territory is and get its update from a secure master station that is not easy to spoof and hack. So there's a good reason for having a whizzing uh, satellite. Also, uh, I'll talk about this later, but it's, it's more difficult to shoot it down, you know, because it's moving. Um, uh, it makes it easier to work when you've only got a few satellites because although you might not have a satellite in view right now, you will have one because there'll be something passing uh, as it zooms around the Earth. Uh, but if you're only doing one area of the world, and Beidou does um, Asia, um, you could just pop a satellite up above Asia and it will just sit there. Um, and that's also true of NAVIC, the, um, the Indian um, system, IRNSS. Uh, there's a lot of rumours circulating about NAVIC. Um, if you read the newspapers or the web, it, it is asserted that the Indian government decided to invest in NAVIC because the American government during the 1990 Kargil War between Pakistan and India, what he said is that the US government denied access to GPS data. 
I don't know what that means because GPS is free, right? I mean, so I'm not sure what data they were expecting. I mean, possibly it was the military-grade decryption that they couldn't get. Possibly selective availability had finished long before then, so I don't really know. I, I suspect that was a sort of urban myth. But um, anyway, you know, the Indian government decided to build its own system, which also has geostationary system. And then the Japanese system is most interesting. The Japanese system is obviously over Japan and covers uh, northern Australia. Um, and what's so interesting about it is it not only... It works with GPS, so it provides infill to give you additional signal coverage in some of the difficult bits of Japan, very high you know, urban environments, deep valleys and so on. But it also provides augmentation. And that's an interesting topic in its own right. So the current, one of the current interesting uh, innovations are satellite-based augmentation systems called um, S-Basses. Right? Now, uh, probably the easiest way to explain this is an old system called differential GPS. So one of the tricks you could do with differential GPS is I'll build a ground station, and I know precisely where that ground station is. I'll measure the local GPS that's receiving, which wanders around and has got errors, and I'll just correct, I'll send out a correction, because if the correction works here, then it'll probably work for you in the surroundings. So that's a differential GPS or a ground-based correction system. Well, okay, so let's do that, but it's a bit difficult to transmit the difference locally. So what I'll do is I'll use a satellite ground station, I'll send it back up to a satellite, a geostationary satellite, and it will beam it down. So there's this augmented set of satellites that sit alongside your constellation of GPS or GLONASS or whatever satellites and give you additional positional accuracy. Now, so great idea. Not many people need it. I mean, you and I, we, I don't need to know where I am to within you know, meter accuracy. But if you're an aircraft, then you're very enthusiastic about SBAS um, systems because, um, I'm sure you know this, but when an aircraft's coming to land in poor visibility, uh, the pilot either has to sort of take a chance, which isn't approved of in the aircraft industry, or they use some radio waves that are directional and on the ground and you sort of fly in on those radio waves. quite an old system, but it's expensive to do. What you can do now is you use your very high accuracy WAAS or EGNOS system that's in your cockpit and it tells you your altitude and position very accurately and you fly in by GPS instruments. And this is approved in almost, well, quite a few Western countries for, for use. Britain is the exception. Um, I don't want to give a lecture on Brexit, but I will point out that we're now no longer part of EGNOS and we're no longer liable. You can try and get the EGNOS uh, data if you like, but you can't at the moment because it's blocked. And if you're landing in Britain at the moment, you're not allowed to use EGNOS to land because we're not part of that um, system. But back to QZS. QZS is one of these systems that provides both augmentation of the GPS constellation and that additional side data that gives you super, super accurate positioning. Right. Brief observation about resilience. I mean, obviously, the GPS system and the GNS has had this fantastic and amazing resilience that you could see people sort of raving about in the leading uh, film to this. That said, it is vulnerable to hacking. Um, and some of these have come out in the, uh, in the recent future. 
I'll sort of briefly comment, but not say very much about the two at the bottom. Obviously, space warfare is, is now a possibility, and NATO in, I think it was quite recently, maybe as late as 2018, declared that space was a new domain of warfare, which means I think they don't quite know what it will involve, but there might be something bad going on. So that's one possibility. There is also the possibility of ionospheric and other variations which might possibly affect the ability to transmit radio waves effectively for a bit. Um, the best known of these was the Carrington event of 1859, which caused a lot of disturbance in telegraphs and various other things. So the two things that are common, well, common is probably the wrong word, but are building in importance are jamming. Jamming is where you use a high power transmitter to essentially block the receiver from working at all, and spoofing. Uh, Let's talk about the first of those, jamming. Uh, this is a paper which was using the International Space Station to look for any transmissions upwards in the L1 band. Clearly, anyone who's got a high-power L1 transmitter on the ground probably has some nefarious intent. And if it's transmitting CA codes, mm, there's no reason to be doing that from the ground. So this is uh, an Air Force base on the west coast of Syria, probably being used by the Russians, and it is transmitting uh, high-power L1 carrier waves in an attempt to disturb uh, local GPS um, receivers. Solution? Well, you could use a very directional antenna. Antennas are very omnidirectional at the moment. You could increase the power in your satellites, and current GPS and Galileo satellites are getting more and more powerful. So, a sort of battle of the titans. You know, I shout, you shout louder. I shout, you shout louder. That might be the way around um, jamming. Jamming needn't be that high power. Um, Trinity House, which is the organisation in the United Kingdom that looks after uh, Atons, aids to navigation on the sea, did an experiment with one of their ships, where they got a tiny little. Uh, jammer uh, with less, uh, less power output than a mobile phone and managed to move all of the GPSs on their ship such that they were way, way out of position. So there isn't a lot of resilient design in GPS receivers at the moment. So that's jamming. And the other one is spoofing. Uh, spoofing is uh, more evil, if you like. That's, that's not only sending out a signal to capture the thing, but with a spurious position. And there have been several um, examples of that in recent times. Most of them have taken place in Russia or the Crimea, and some enterprising intelligence analysts in Washington, D.C. have correlated these appearances, and they're fairly easy to spot because um, it's often with ships, and ships are very... Um, very disciplined about writing down their position in the log. You know, so they'll, they'll look at the GPS position, they'll write it down and log it, because they're required to do that as part of their, their code of practice. Um, you can also use a system called AIS, where ships automatically transmit their uh, position, and you can spot ships leaping about. And there was a good example of all of the ships leaping suddenly into the middle of an airport in, in Russia, you know, instantly. Strangely, these events seem to correlate with the appearance of President Putin at these uh, places. So the accusation is that the Russians have developed an effective um, spoofing um, uh, technology. I think it's probably unfair to call out the Russians. I think it's an obvious thing for people to do. But obviously, it's intensely dangerous, and I would not, 
I certainly wouldn't recommend trying it at home. Um, there's been a little bit of work in the United Kingdom on what would happen if GPS would fail. And there's this report which you can read, which is called a Blackett Review, which was commissioned by actually another um, Gresham professor, uh, Professor Chris Whitty, when he was in a different post, um, to look at what would, what would happen uh, to us. And there have been reports that look at the economic impact of that, and they draw it all out. And at one point, the minister, who was at Caroline Noakes, was persuaded that we had to have a backup system, that the UK was too dependent upon GPS. And she said, um, I believe that we should have a ground-based system, which she calls in this letter E-Loran. Um, well, I, I really can't get my head around this. I mean, this letter was written two years after we withdrew E-Loran. So it's the most peculiar sort of observation. And frankly, I... I have a suspicion that isn't the, the way forward. Um, we have a GNNS, and it has got multiple political actors in it. Surely that is the way to give ourselves redundancy, to make sure that we're never reliant on one of them. On a brief political point, I would say, Britain, I think, is the only country that is a member of the permanent, UN permanent, is a permanent member of the UN Security Council and does not have sovereignty over any of the GNSS. Right? So just talking very parochially for the time being, because this is a lecture being recorded in Britain, we have put ourselves in the position of needing GPS for almost everything we do, but having no political power over any of it. And that was a deliberate decision to remove ourselves from the Galileo programme, which uh, was one of the fallouts of the Brexit negotiations. I, I assume it was just uh, too expensive. So that's an interesting um, observation. What I think in terms of this story, this series that I'm talking about, which is sponsored by the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists, is all about invention. And I've tried to pick inventions that perhaps haven't not so well understood by people, but have had this most enormous impact. And I'm confident myself that GPS sort of meets the bar you know, it's had this most enormous and important societal impact and it's detailed and intricate and fascinating and thank you very much for joining me in the explanation of it. Thank you. So the first question is, how do all of the detailed information, for example, speed limits, road delays, construction, get sent to my GPS provider and then to me so quickly? Yeah. So what, this correspond, what your correspondent is talking about here is the computer that we call a GPS in our car. And it, contained within that is the GPS that I've been talking about. And around it is another computer that knows all of the roads in, say, the United States or all of the charts in France or Europe or whatever. And how are they put in? Well, it used to be done by a team of people typing them in. <laughs> so you would very laboriously digitise all of the roads in the United Kingdom from aerial photographs, and then you would type in where all of the speed signs were and where all of that was, and indeed all of the roadworks which you collect from the main uh, control, and then you would use a separate radio channel, a terrestrial radio channel, to tell you what was going on. It's changed a bit, but not that much. So it's basically two systems in one. Mm. There's the knowing where you are, and that's the GPS, 
I know we all call it a GPS, but that's <laughs> the GPS. And then, oh, but, but it might be Galileo now, remember? Um, right. um, and then there's all of the navigational software and all of that stuff, which of course now, as we all know, now sits easily on your mobile phone. Thank you. Um, and one more from the online audience. Can GPS be hacked by malevolent organizations or countries? It would seem so, is the simple answer uh, to that. So the first question might be, can it be hacked by non-malevolent mm. people, right? Just by accident. Well, there is a danger. You know, it's a very poor signal-to-noise ratio at the receiver. So I think it is possible to overwhelm your GPS. And you can see the evidence of that because when you're indoors, it doesn't work. The, it just doesn't get transmitted. So the, the, <laughs> the, the answer that wasn't, to the question that wasn't asked is it is quite sensitive to jamming. The answer to malevolent powers is sort of contained in the latter part of the lecture, I think. Thank you. Um, so I have a question around the laws for building one. So, you, you know, you did show that there have been new GPSs made. Yeah. Um, what's the law around that? Of course, the law is, like, you know, intricate, but can, can, can I build one? Um, am I able to build my own GPS, or are there laws which stop me, or laws which stop other countries from building their own? What Can you right. briefly describe Yeah, it's a good question. So... Um, Let's talk about the USA, right? Um, in the USA, certain um, activities are subject to prohibition. Uh, so anything that interferes with GPS is basically, you'll get a knock at the door and the boys in blue will, will, will deal with you and there are laws stopping you interfering with uh, GPS. Uh, there are laws in this country about interfering with official transmissions. Uh, there is nothing to stop other countries building um, additional systems. If they do it right, what they do is they form a treaty. So the Galileo, for example, which came after GPS, was enshrined in a treaty between the US and all of the European countries. And what it says, it's very simple, what it says is, we agree to use these frequencies, we agree to use these CA codes, we agree not to interfere with you. Um, oh, as one interesting thing, it says right at the beginning, um, so long as it's not wartime. So if it's wartime, all bets are off. So in virtual reality, how is GPS and virtual reality going to mix and create by the future? Right, that is a complicated question. I knew you'd pick the last question to be a fiendishly <laughs> complicated question. But they are intimately linked technology. So the lady, if you didn't hear the question, was asking to what, I think you were asking, to what extent are VR and GPS intertwined. And VR doesn't work unless you know where you are. Right? And one of the challenges when I was a kid, really, of getting VR to work was to know, know where you were. And GPS just wasn't good enough to do it. Now it is. Anyone here play Pokemon Go? Just looking at the more antique of the audience. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, well, there is a bit of an age split here, but a few, few people my age have had a go at it. Okay, so um, one of the things that happens in Pokemon Go is Pokemon, Pokemon Go, for you, those of you who don't know, is a VR game where you, you go and find jewels out in the real world. And, of course, it's very dangerous and probably get run over by all sorts of cars when you're trying to... You're absorbed in your, in your screen. Um, there is a small niche area, which is Pokemon Go hacking, where you spoof your GPS position back to the game 
so people think you're somewhere else. Right? And there's an example of... Now, I haven't talked about that sort of hacking that, because that's a, that's a whole different form of attack on the GPS system where people are pretending to others that they're not where they say they might be. It's also it's not done quite as maliciously, but it, fishermen often turn off their AIS receivers so their competition don't know where all the sea bass are to be found. <laughs> okay, um, thank you very much once again. Please join me in thanking Professor Harvey. Thank you.